I believe prayer is powerful, but not in the traditionally not in a traditionally understood way. Like I would like some people read my book and they're like, oh, so we shouldn't pray at all. And I'm like, the last section of my book has over 20 prayers uh, by uh, theologians, authors, uh, lay people. I'm very passionate about prayer. The last section of the book is dedicated to that. But it's nuanced. So if one was to ask me, Mark, if I'm praying for my sick uh, father and uh, he has cancer, does it do anything? Does it matter? And I want to say, of course it does. Do never, never stop praying. So for me, there's a few reasons for that. One is that God loves relationship. We are always to pour our hearts out to God, right? So for me, it's a, it's a relationship with God. And in that prayer, it can change ourselves and it can change God in the sense that if I'm praying for my ailing father, God could whisper into my ears, and this is where conspiring prayer comes in, here's, where, here's how I want you to be my hands and feet in this situation. Here's where I want you to increase some shalom in your father's life. I've been spending half my day worrying about where we're going. Hiding in my dreams, I've been searching for a path to tomorrow. Everybody, happy November. November is a month of gratitude, and so let me first express my thanks to those of you that have downloaded, those of you that have listened, to the few of you that have been here since the beginning, and the thousands of you that are here now. I am so thankful for each and every one of you for participating in and with this podcast. If you have not yet done so, go to the website. Can I say this at church.com? Send me some feedback via email. Let me know what you would like to hear different next year. Artists, authors, topics, questions, anything at all. I would really love if that happened. Please remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It really does help more so than, well, honestly, than you should think that it should. But that's the way computer algorithms work. There has been a tremendous uptick in the Patreon support And I am blown away by that, extremely blown away by that. And so thank you, each and every one of you. Uh, You'll find links to that as well if you just hit the Patreon button. A few of you have have emailed in saying, hey, is there a way to do something not in an ongoing way, but on a one-off way? And so I haven't figured out the best way to do that, but I am working on that. And I'll release that as we go. Something else on the horizon. I am not the best, but thought maybe we'd try a newsletter as well, something to to get out information to you that doesn't necessarily need to be released to iTunes. And so I'm gradually trying to figure out how that will work. And if that's something you're interested in, love to get that out to you, but I don't know exactly when that will happen, but hopefully soon. Enough of that. Here we go. So I've talked a bit in the past, a little bit about prayer, but mostly in a contemplative way as it deals to how I relate to God But I feel like we're burying the lead there. So oftentimes, I know we're taught to pray, you know, at the dinner table as a young child, you know, God, do this, or God, please be with this, or God, help me do this, or be better at this. And that is called petitionary prayer, a request, like some grandiose parental genie figure in the sky that if we do it right and we pray it right, we'll be granted what we asked for. As if for some reason God doesn't know what we need 
So I sat down, I spoke with Mark Karras, who is the author of a beautiful book, and I encourage you to get it for many reasons, but most importantly, you're here at the end of the show. To those of you listening, um, if you shoot him an email, just let him know that you got the book, you heard about it on the show, he's going to send you some more information, a study guide to sit down in a small group setting or in a setting yourself and uh, engage more in what he calls conspiring prayer. And we'll get into that a bit more in the episode, but a bit about Mark. Mark is a licensed therapist. He's an ordained pastor. He's a theologian. He's a writer. He's extremely genuine and compassionate. And you'll hear that in the way that he talks about prayer. His story is gut-riching and honest and so much like your story and my story and so many others that we hear about. Through his years of counseling and therapy and ministry, He's come to to look at prayer slightly differently. He's come to look at prayer in a way that we don't ask God to do something for us. We pray in a way so that we come alongside God with him. And I'm doing that a disservice. I'm not explaining it well. And so I think that's a good spot to start. Here we go. A conversation on prayer with Mark Karras. I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to worry I'm shutting down the doors that gave me down I'm not going to worry I'm not going to worry I'm shutting down the doors that gave me down Mark Harris, first off and foremost, thank you so much for making the time to come on uh, to the show. I know we are on different parts of the continent, and so... I'm excited for the internet and days like today's where it makes it so much easier to have conversations like this. And I honestly think, before we get started, that's probably the reason that I think the church is starting to shift uh, in ways that it used to not be able to, because people are able to communicate in so much better ways. But it's kind of a side yeah. note, kind of a side note. Mark, what? so you wrote a book earlier in 2018, I believe, uh, called Divine Echoes. I love that book, and I want yeah. I want to spend... A good portion of our time talking about the themes and some personal questions that I have out of it, some questions that I've gotten from some of the listeners and some of the Facebook group from it. A lot of them are emotionally charged, but I think prayer is emotionally charged. So before we get into that, what would you want people to know about Mark Karras? Like what what has brought you through your life, kind of your history to where you're at now, and maybe some of the reasonings on the tail end of that for writing Divine Echoes? Well, well, first of all, thank you for allowing me to be on your, your awesome show, and I'm excited to, to share, share my heart, and share a little bit about this book. So I guess the origin story is uh, what, what we're talking about now. There's so much to share, but so we're, we're talking about prayer, talking about deconstructing prayer. Really, the book is Divine Echoes reconciling prayer with the uncontrolling love of God. So how do we make sense of prayer, specifically petitionary prayer, um, in in relation to a God who I believe whose love is uncontrolling? And that uncontrolling piece is going to uh, add a lot of nuance to the conversation, especially in what we're talking about, uh, particularly um, theodicy. So we're going to be talking about prayer. And theodicy, and when I think of theodicy, for me, that's sort of how, the attempt to make sense of how a good, loving, and omnipotent God is involved or not involved 
with the harsh reality of evil and suffering in the world. So I'm going to try to have a dance between prayer and theodicy. So kind of the origin story is, well, I think like most people, paradigm shift, paradigm shift through suffering and through a whole lot of suffering. And I talk a little bit about that in my book. Basically, to make a long story short, it was to do with my brother um, and my mother. And and those two uh, were instrumental in, in shaping the questions that I had. So for my mom, you know, I remember I became a Christian around 21. Before that, I was lost, hopeless, uh, cutter, depressed, uh, suicidal. That's a whole other story. But I eventually come to know Jesus at uh, 21 with a pretty, um, pretty powerful testimony, very experiential kind of blasting me with a tsunami of love that put me in a really interesting state of weeping and crying and not because I was sad anymore, but because I felt the um, amazing love of God. And so as crazy as Christianity as a religion can be, those uh, events of an intimate encounter with God, um, they keep me stuck with him. It's my, uh, my stake in the ground. It's hard to not believe in God because of those experiential experiences. So at 21, I was praying for my mom. Why? Because she was a drug addict, because she was definitely not okay for many, for most of my life, a drug dealer, a drug addict. And she was, you know, she did the best she could, um, but it got to the point after cocaine and, and heroin and drinking and pills, um, that she passed away. And that's after year after year praying for her, praying to God to rid her of her debilitating addiction. I mean, why not? Why not pray, in my mind, to a God who literally can snap his fingers like Thanos in the Avengers and literally change the outcome of events because that's how powerful I believed God was. But that didn't happen. And although there were glimmering moments when I thought my mom had seen the light, those were fleeting. And I never got tired of praying, actually a little bit, but I always fervently prayed for her, fasted. I mean, got other churches to pray for her, but she wound up overdosing and died. Um, So fast forward then to my brother, my younger brother. He was the life of the party. He was just an amazing human being. Uh, you know, kind of a best friend, fellow adventurer. And then one day I found his stuff at the outside at the curb, you know, coming up from work, found all the stuff outside. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? Of course, I found that very strange. When in the house, he was curled up in a ball, mumbling and incoherent. He had thrown out all his belongings. I had no idea why, but soon learned that he suffered his first psychotic episode. And after that day, never the same again, a cycle of psychotic episodes, uh, going to jail for doing something not very good, Mm -hmm. uh, getting put on medication, uh, getting off his medication because he's not sick, everyone else is, and then just the cycle until the point he wound up going to prison for uh, really hurting someone. And then in prison, off his meds, he murdered somebody. 
And that's, you know, listen, that's after praying. I mean, we took him to uh, deliverance, people who specialize in deliverance services and uh, casting out demons and once again praying. And, and it got me to a point where there were other, you know, internal struggles, but I started questioning, what does prayer actually do? You know, uh, the, and it reminds me of that quote by the famous well-known Christian philosopher Dallas Willard, the idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. Mm-hmm. And that specter of the failure of prayer haunted me. So that's a little bit of the origin story. Then fast forward a little bit to visiting Indonesia and Malaysia and Korea and other East Asian cultures and looking and just realizing that, wow, prayer is ubiquitous. Like praying for, to this divine other for shelter and food and health. I mean, prayer is as old as human beings have been sentient. Um, So that's sort of got me questioning too. And that combination just said, man, there's something, something interesting here, but something off here. Because I asked the very important question for myself, too. If prayer doesn't work the way we think it does, my God, it is increasing the amount of suffering in the world. And it actually contributes to evil and, and suffering in a way that it's, it's, it breaks the heart of God. Yeah. That's the paradoxical understanding. Because if I'm praying thinking God's going to do something, but God, for other reasons, can't, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. And that means the thing, the person we're praying for, the situation, is not getting any better because God is saying, uh, yeah, I know about that. I love that person more than you do. You're supposed to be my hands and my feet in the world. I'm, now God's praying to us to do the very thing we mutually want. But if no one is doing anything because I'm spending energy praying, believing God is doing it, then that is increasing the suffering, not only in the world, but in people's lives. And that was like, that hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And it reminds me of, and it's not prayer related, but I asked a similar question or similar vein to that, um, to both, I believe Keith Giles and Mark Van Steenwick. One was arguing for, Mm. you know, like Christian anarchy. And, you know, uh, we should just get rid of any government for X or Y or Z reasons. And the other was don't vote as a Christian because you're pledging allegiance to the wrong thing. And I asked them both the same thing. And Keith was like, when I say don't vote, I didn't say don't act. Like you still, Mm -hmm. you see a need, you and or your church or both of you do that. So if people are hungry, feed them. But don't vote yeah. and expect someone yeah. else to do it. And Mark said the same thing. I was like, well, what happens to the safety nets, you know, medicine and schooling? And he's like, well, that's what the church actually is. When I said no government, I didn't say no governance. I said no government, yeah. um, which is entirely separate. Yeah. And so I hear yeah. a lot of that. You know, it's not necessarily I prayed and I've washed my hands of this. I don't have to deal with this anymore. And uh, God's going to yeah. figure it yeah. out, which makes me feel good, especially as an American. I feel like... We don't always yeah. want to put our money where our mouth is. I sent the text to donate relief to the hurricane people. I did my part. We're good. So um, before we get yeah. in yeah. to petitionary prayer, I am curious. So do sure. you draw a distinction, be- blah, a distinction between different forms of prayer? So like, there's 
you know, as I did more research, you know, uh, you know, there's exorcisms, which we don't do a lot of in the, you know, in the Protestant church. And that's a form of prayer. There's petitionary prayer. Um, there's a different form of prayer. You give it a different word. How would you go? A conspiring prayer. But how mm-hmm. do you, what are the distinctions between those? Like between an exorcism or petitionary or conspiring? Is it, is it my posture or is it the intent? Is it the way God's supposed to act as an agent? Like what, what are the distinctions or what do you think those distinctions are? Yeah. I mean, there's so many different kinds of prayer in, in, in this book. Um, you know, we're talking about something very specific and I, I try to, uh, you know, I try to talk about that, right. There's, there's praying for oneself. I'm alone in my prayer closet and I'm just praying for myself. For me, that's going to be a little different than, praying for somebody who doesn't even may not know that they're being prayed for. Um, and that's what I, you know, call in some ways uh, petitionary prayer, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's praying, praying on behalf of somebody else, uh, usually from a distance. But I then, I mean, it's so nuanced because then I make a difference between face-to-face prayer, praying for somebody when they're present. For me, there's actually a little difference with that because the person that we're praying for uh, hopefully is actually open to receiving prayer. So all those little nuances are going to be different. I mean, then there's, you know, prayers of lament and prayers of thanksgiving and prayers of praise. So there's all different kinds of prayers. Um, But, you know, what we're talking about is in this book is really petitionary prayer praying on behalf of others, we're praying, we're basically praying to God that God would do something that God was not doing beforehand. And it's usually to increase God's love in the world in practical ways, mm-hmm. right? That's the essence of petitionary prayer. I believe that God can do it, has the power to do it usually, uh, and he can literally snap his fingers and do it, do it. And I'm praying to God. And I think some people are actually begging God to increase his love in the world. That's kind of, for me, the, the essence of uh, petitionary prayer. Yeah, yeah. So if I am, so to, to drill that down, so say, uh, say I am a cancer nurse or I'm a parent of somebody that has cancer, like my child has cancer, and I am fervently mm-hmm. praying in the hospital for healing. Which happens often, and if you just turn on Facebook or you go to any church group and you look in their newsletter, and here's who we're praying for, and here's the specific ailment that we're praying for healing for. And then whether or not that happens or not, it seems to just be luck of the draw. Atheists get the same uh, reprieve from illness or miracles that Christians do, at least from what I can see. So mm-hmm. are my prayers meaningless? Is this just something that I'm just literally giving lip service to? Is there any purpose? For me, because I, I will say, like, like my dad currently has cancer, and I do pray mm-hmm. fervently. Yeah, um, yeah. And then I read mm-hmm. what you've written, and it's a compelling case. And I'm like, but I still want to pray for healing. And there's, I, I, I don't yeah. know how to deal with that tension. And I don't know if, like, my yeah. child is dying of cancer, how to deal with that tension. Or, you know, in your situation, your mom or your brother. Like, I, I don't know how to reconcile that tension. Yeah. Once again, here's a nuanced conversation where I believe prayer is powerful, but not in the traditionally not in a traditionally understood way. 
like I would like some people read my book and they're like, oh, so we shouldn't pray at all. And I'm like, the last section of my book has over 20 prayers uh, by uh, theologians, authors, uh, lay people. I'm very passionate about prayer. The last section of the book is dedicated to that. Mm-hmm. But it's nuanced. So if one was to ask me, Mark, if I'm praying for my sick uh, father and uh, he has cancer, does it do anything? Does it matter? And I want to say, of course it does. Do never, never stop praying. So for me, there's a few reasons for that. One is that God loves relationship. We are always to pour our hearts out to God, right? So for me, it's a, it's a relationship with God. And in that prayer, it can change ourselves and it can change God in the sense that if I'm praying for my ailing father, God could whisper into my ears, and this is where conspiring prayer comes in, here is where, here's how I want you to be my hands and feet in this situation. Here is where I want you to increase some shalom in your father's life. I mean, that's going to be a little different prayer than me praying, God, you're the one with all the power, and I know you can snap your fingers and heal my father. For some strange reason, you haven't, and you haven't for many years. But I'm going to keep praying, uh, a.k.a. I'm going to pr- keep begging you because you can do it for some reason. You're not doing it. But I have this weird notion that maybe I'm not even saying explicitly that if I pray enough, and maybe if I get 30 my friends pray, and maybe 100 through a prayer chain, once it gets to 100 people, I mean, 99, you're not going to do it. But if it gets to 100 people praying, for some reason, that's, that's the cutoff. That's the straw that broke the camel's back. That's where you're finally going to say, okay, I'm going to love this person in this way now. Yeah. So for me, is it a waste of time? It's not if you're thinking you're in relationship with the God who cares about your heart, who cares about your father, who wants him to be healed as much as you do. But that's going to be different than praying to a God who is like some kind of magic genie who can instantly, unilaterally, or, or the word single-handedly uh, do something different than God was not doing beforehand. So you mentioned Facebook. A friend of mine on Facebook was asking her friends and, and family uh, to pray. She said, you know, can you pray that God will comfort my brother and his wife? They lost their child. And I'm thinking, what a beautiful prayer. And they say, you know, they lost their child. They're in desperate need of God's grace. So for me, and I know this is hard, but to believe that praying alone in one's room, God, please comfort her friends and extend your loving mercy and grace to that family would increase God's comfort, mercy, and grace in their lives. So for me, God doesn't wait for us to pray before he begins comforting his children who are grieving, right? God doesn't say, the fifth person finally prayed for me to extend mercy, so now I will. So for me, praying to God that he will comfort and pour out his grace on my family's friend is like asking my wife to do the dishes while she's in the middle of doing the dishes. It's better to ask God, how can I join you in extending your comfort and grace to them, just as it is better to ask my wife, hey, honey, how can I help you with that? And this goes into our view and image of God. If I really believe God is love, and that God love is loving moment to moment to maximize the, the shalom in people's life and in all creation, that's going to be how I pray to that God is going to be different than a God who I believe is withholding, 
or is arbitrary and unfair and heals some but chooses not to heal others, um, chooses to heal this kid from leukemia, but no, I, you know, it's, I'm going to let this kid just suffer for years for this illness. Oh, this woman being raped, I'm going to stop this from happening. But you know what? I'm, I'm going to, you know, you know, that kind of arbitrary, unfair God, man, we're, we're perpetuating that image to the world. And no wonder why people uh, move away from God, distance themselves from God. It's an obstacle to relating to a loving an incredible and amazing God well, I mean, in, my, in my mind. Well, it's a valid obstacle. I mean, as I've had conversations with people, a lot of people via email, and I have to think you, you do the same with, with the line of work that you're in. Um, a lot of people, that is their big, they feel unable to question their doubts, and a lot of their doubts are wrapped up in trauma and in pain and in and mm. a broken promise because they've been told, if you pray fervently enough, X will happen, and if it didn't happen, you did it wrong, uh, which I, I, I'm I 100% against, because that's not the way that I view God anymore, and I, I genuinely believe the way that we pray uh, impacts the way that we think about God. Uh, before we get to yeah. theodicy, though, which mm-hmm. is where I'm going with that, I, I am curious, so I asked a few friends yeah. if if they if they see in Scripture any any support for a petitionary form of prayer, and I got the same answer over and over. You know, you got Daniel in the lion's den. You've got uh, stories and acts about Peter. You've got uh, some stuff at the end of James, and then you have and I forget I'm going to get the cities wrong. Uh, Sodom, I believe, in Gomorrah, and you know I'm going to go in and well, don't kill him if you yeah. don't. If you don't, what about if I find ten people? All right, I'm still going to do it. What about you know what about this many people? What about this many people? Yeah. And so there's some scripture to show. I'm talking in a con- conversation to God, and we'll call that prayer. Something different happened that I wanted to have happen. And so how do we deal yeah, with those yeah. texts where, I mean, well, you can read Scripture to make it think anything, but there are enough threads to pull there that I can see how someone would make a case for praying that way. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. I spend the section of that book dealing with passages that were given to me that said, uh, Mark, uh, yeah, the Bible says repeatedly to pray, to pray for others. And there's been miracles, right? Uh, what about the Old Testament? You know, God is going to uh, be violent and kill some people, and uh, you pray, and then God relents and changes his mind. So, man, that is such a lengthy conversation. Um, I think, how, how do I begin this? Can you, you know, just can you just take one of those? Can you just take one of those? Say the say the text in James or the text about Peter, and just kind of go through yeah, one of those I mean, examples because I would imagine it's thematically yeah. this. I, when I say imagine, I've I've read that portion of the book, so I do know I do know the answer. Um, but yeah, I want I yeah, want yeah. others to know. So can yeah. you just take one of those texts and tackle that just as a uh, a concept of how to yeah. how to look at prayer in Scripture in a new light? So I will. I have to start it with the character of God and hermeneutics. My hermeneutic is Jesus. My hermeneutic is love. Um, so for me, the hermeneutic is based on, uh, you know, I, in the book I call it the quadrilateral hermeneutic of love. I'll probably change that title. But either way, it's kind of this four-part lens that I look at the various texts through. 
And so that's based on the fruit of the Spirit. Um, the biblical definition of love, I'm not making it up. The Bible defines love. Uh, so, and then I look at one of the only explicit parabolic pictures Jesus gave of God the Father found in what some people call prodigal son. I consider the prodigal father, actually. And then there's a radical self-giving others empowering life for Jesus. So I'm looking at scriptures through that lens. So for quick, when I look at Old Testament and I see all these people, you know, maybe they're praying and God relented to violence. I'm saying, yeah, I don't think that was God. And I know that gets into hermeneutics and people get really anxious when I say that. For me, people are meaning-making, story-making uh, human beings. Uh, these stories were written long after the event. Uh, community, there were communities of trauma. They were trying to make sense of life, the world they were living in, the, the world where God was in control, who in Isaiah 45 7 says, who creates the good and creates the evil, uh, making sense of them getting their butts kicked by other nations. And they're, they're trying to make sense of these stories. And they're trying to pass these stories down to generations to knit these communities back together. And so some of these stories about God, you know, going to destroy or burn alive or use a nation to literally kill others or a God who kills babies or a God who uh, wipes the world with a flood. You know, for me, I can't, what, is that Jesus? You know, if Jesus is God, can we just say, yeah, um, Jesus killed babies and Jesus burned people alive. And we start thinking, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And for me, to make a long story short, it's hard to buy into that. Yeah. So let's take uh, uh, this, the passage in James. I would get that all the time. And uh, that's one of the most you know, powerful, hey, Mark, we need to pray. And encourages the elders of the church to lay on hands and pray for the sick, the sinful, and those in need of healing prayer. Right, so then he writes that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So then he gets into Elijah, right? And, and Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. So first context. The context is praying face-to-face with people, right? Praying for the sick, praying for those who might sin, even sin might be affecting their lives. He's talking about the power of face-to-face prayer. He then alludes to Elijah and that being an example for us. But here again, I'm looking at the hermeneutic of love, and I'm saying, man, Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain, so let me get this straight. Uh, Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain to teach uh, another nation, another people, a tribe, that God is pissed at them because they were disobedient and sinful. So God made it cause a drought. But what are we seeing? Can you imagine the, the detrimental, the destructive effects of a full-on drought, what some people say it was the entire world, uh, but it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months because God wanted to teach them a lesson. So I have a hard time believing that, particularly when I look at the life of Jesus and hermeneutic of love, that God would literally destroy life to that extent. I mean, that would kill, you know, who knows, countless amount of people, countless amount of animals. It would have a, and, and think about all the people who would be praying to God for, you know, it, it to rain. 
So is that a powerful example of petitionary prayer? I'm struggling with that, right? When I look at the character of God displayed in, in that particular author's view of God, I struggle. Is praying for others face-to-face powerful? Absolutely. Is that pastoral advice to look at Elijah and, and be encouraged? You know, he was kind of doing a pastoral thing of look at this guy, if he could pray and this can happen. I mean, it's encouraging. I get it, right? It shows us, yeah, we should pray. But what does that mean, really, if we really start thinking about it, that God caused that, caused that much suffering and death uh, to teach people a lesson? Um, so I struggle with those kinds of verses, so they're not the best verses to show. Well, see, Mark, uh, it says to pray. Now, there's other verses that call us to pray. Apostle Paul was passionate about prayer. So there again, I am too. Prayer is amazing. It changes us, first and foremost. And it changes God only in the sense that when it changes us, it changes what God can do in the world because we become more open to what God, uh, how God wants to use us. Yeah, I 100% agree. I've been working through uh, the examine for months. I try to do it many times during the week. And it is, like I can physically feel myself responding to events differently than I used to. So something is changing yeah. in me, and I guess if we want to use a Christianese term, we could call that sanctification, uh, or a, a college word, we'll call that theosis. You know, it's fine, but yeah, yeah. I, I'm beginning to think that prayer does much more for me and how I use my words, which impact my actions uh, to help further the kingdom, than it does for, and this sounds horrible to say out loud, than it does for healing some sick child in a hospital dying right now. Yeah, and even saying yeah. that out loud still I mean, feels yeah. wrong, but it still feels true. Yeah, and, and here again, the, the nuance of what I'm saying, I mean, going to the hospital and praying for a sick child, there's something beautiful that can occur. And it's going to be how you pray, we can pray and make things worse, or we can pray in a way that does, in that moment, uh, increase the shalom maybe in that child's life. And I'm even open to the possibility that in that synergistic encounter between the faith of the child and the faith of the one who is praying and, and the, the, the organs and the food that the child is eating and the other love that's in that child's life and a myriad of other variables that a, what we call a miracle can happen, right? I, I'm not opposed to that. But it's not, for me, it's always God does a miracle in cooperation uh, with with other variables and elements and wills, and not something that God can do unilaterally. Yeah. And for me, that makes more sense. So I can still pray. I can believe that God does the impossible, but it's in a different way. It's in a different light. It's with different nuance. It's with a different paradigm shift. So I'm not, I love prayer. I encourage people to pray, but not to a magical genie in the sky who once in a while, uh, you know, uh, pours out his, his, you know, throws a scrap of love down the world as people beg for him to do so. That kind of God's difficult to swallow. A
let's go there. So theodicy is what we're hinting around there. So what does the view of, I would argue, the way most people pray today, what does that view, what are the theological implications of that? Uh, Because I find the implications of that are either a willfully contrite and, what's the word I'm trying to find? A willfully ambivalent, I'll do it if I feel like it, nine-year-old version of God's grace, and I can't sit well with that. So besides the love of God and the way and his character, what other theological implications does a traditional petitionary prayer theologically imply? Like what other issues does it arise? You know, I think it's best to maybe differentiate what I think of as traditional petitionary prayer and and juxtapose that with conspiring prayer. Yeah. And and we could see the little differences and nuances. So that gets just into theodicy and this is, you know, the, the incredible Thomas Ord's work. This gets into his work, and he's uh, in coming out with an incredible book, literally called God Can't. Uh, I believe that's coming out in, in January. And, uh, man, that book is going to rock people's lives. Excited for that. But here's an important piece of theodicy, right? It gets into the character of God. And what I'm suggesting and others are suggesting is that God is love. And because God is love, God cannot single-handedly control other human beings and single-handedly control the outcome of events, right? And when people hear God can't, they, they get freaked out a little bit. Whoa, God's omnipotent. God's all-powerful. God's almighty. Listen, Scripture itself teaches that God cannot do some things. God cannot lie, right? God cannot be tempted. He cannot be prejudiced. He cannot sin. He cannot get tired. And I'm suggesting, let's add another element here if we really take seriously that God is love, as as First John tells us. So God's love precludes God from unilaterally controlling others. So in other words, it's not that God chooses not to, it is that God cannot disregard the free will and agency of people and force his way into situations and change the outcome. So when we think of the theodicy, why does so much evil happen in the world, it's not because God's arbitrarily, well, let this happen, I won't let this happen, God's unfair, uh, God's sort of um, up in the sky somewhere and, and sometimes chooses to intervene, right? It's that God is love and that God can't do some things. And that means that God cannot uh, unilaterally intervene and change the outcome events. That means that God is, is, is weeping alongside us with many of the things that we experience in this world. Uh, so in traditional petitioning prayer, to look at both of them, God can intervene and single-handedly stop evil events from occurring. In conspiring prayer, and we didn't get into a definition, but let's just do that quickly. To conspire literally means to breathe together, to act in harmony towards a common end. And I define conspiring prayer as a form of prayer where we create space in our busy lives to align our hearts with God's heart, where our spirit and God's spirit breathe harmoniously together, and where we plot together to subversively overcome evil with acts of love and goodness. So like I said, knowing that definition, in traditional prayer, God can intervene and do whatever God wants, whenever God wants to do it, however God wants to do it. Conspiring prayer, we say, no, God can't. And that's due to God's uncontrolling, loving nature. 
In traditional petitioning prayer, God is arbitrarily loving and shows favorites. In conspiring prayer, God loves consistently and fairly. In traditional petitioning prayer, God intervenes on occasion. In conspiring prayer, God is moment-to-moment loving and maximizing the good and the beautiful and, and shalom in all people's lives, in all creation. And that's, that's a powerful statement, right? God's not just up in the sky. God is everywhere in each moment. So in traditional petitioning prayer, we pray to God. In conspiring prayer, we pray with God. We pray with a God who mutually, uh, in many instances, are, is groaning with us because God wants the very shalom that we are praying for. That's how loving God is, yeah. right? We pray for many things uh, because we love and we feel that suffering with another person who's suffering. God, how much exponentially does God experience that of God's love? In traditional petitioning prayer, God, you bring shalom in this person's life or situation. In conspiring prayer, God, how can we creatively work towards shalom in this person's life or situation? In traditional petitioning prayer, we speak, God listens. In a conspiring prayer, we speak, God speaks. And we both listen. Yeah, I like that. So hopefully that gets your listeners a little bit of a the nuance between the traditional petitioning prayer and what I think is a more effective way of praying petitionary prayers, and that's conspiring prayer. You referenced Thomas Ord, and so as I read your book, I think I read it in September. So one of the the perks for some of the the patron supporters that that do a certain level is I send them a book each month, uh, and those books have varied uh, widely. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, yeah, I'm humbled yeah. by their uh, willingness to help me to let me curate that because I don't really tell them ahead of time what I'm sending. I just something that's speaking or interesting to me, I send out. And based Maybe. on the way that you talk about Ord, I ended up sending out uh, his book on the uncontrolling love of God, and I can't remember the exact oh, title. Wow. I know it's a red cover. Uh, they'll already yeah, have yeah. that by the time they heard this. But um, oh, wonderful! Yeah, because I because. I like that idea, and and specifically, you talk about God as love, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read this from your book, although it's mostly from the Bible, and so I, I feel like I can't plagiarize that. So uh, you say saying quote God is love is not pure sentimentality pushed by a liberal and progressive agenda, which I think is a key part of that. God is love; it is biblical, and if God is love, then biblical definition of love, First Corinthians thirteen, must also be characteristic of God. And so therefore, God is patient and kind. He's not envious. He doesn't boast. He's not arrogant or rude or insist and everything else that you would hear at a wedding. And I really like that. And I like that for the same reason that lately I've been dealing with inerrancy a lot. And I like to juxtapose that anywhere that I see the word, the word, I just, I put, I, I hear Jesus. So if, if, if the word of God is Jesus, then when I see Paul reference the word, we're talking about Jesus. We're not talking about the letters. We're t- in on these pages or these scrolls. We're we're talking about Jesus, uh, and so I've, Logos, I yeah. yeah I enjoy doing the same thing with what you've done there, and I think it's a great definition of love. I have to think. Right. Right. I have yeah. to think yeah. when you stand up and preach this at a church, that you're either going to get one of two outcomes. People say, "All right, great. I've been doing it wrong. I'm willing to admit that. I'm a little angry that I may have been doing it wrong and I've been lied to." But what do I do now? How do I fix it? Or the inverse is, Mark, you're wrong, and they probably run you out of the church. Very hateful, and I would imagine um, in in much stronger means and much stronger 
yelling sessions because I've been privy to a few of those with some of the things that I have espoused over the past few years. But yeah, but I don't yeah. really want to focus on that. I'm sure there's more than enough conversations on the internet about what that looks like, and and it doesn't matter if we're talking about prayer or about penal substitutionary atonement or anything else. Yeah, that conversation yeah. sounds the same. So how then do we reconstruct prayer? If we throw it out, and you, you, and you talked about it a bit, conspiring of what who is listening and how the conversation happens, but what does that prayer sound like? What does that prayer look like? Yeah. And, uh, and, and hermeneutically or scripturally, what what examples are we drawing from, if, if that makes sense? Like, people listening, how do they... How do they begin to try to do this in, with a different mindset of outcome tomorrow or today or next week? Yeah. First off, I want to say I, I did get kicked out of a church that I was going to because of the book. I gave it both passes of the book, and, and uh, yeah, that uh, was not a good outcome. Like I said, we could, we could talk all about that, but I, I really appreciate the desire to reconstruct, and, and what does it really look like in everyday life? So like I said, I, you know, I do spend the last part of the book doing that. It, the chapter, uh, that section is called Reconstruction. I have a workbook that goes along with the book that communities, that churches have been using to uh, come up with their own theology of prayer. And some have, um, you know, some have shifted their view of prayer. Some have kept their traditional view of prayer. Uh, but then kept uh, uh, the conspiring prayer. Uh, some people couldn't uh, keep any of it. Uh, so it, it's nuanced, but so what does it look like? So maybe we can look at mass shootings. Uh, and I, I talked a little bit about this in the book because there's been mass shootings. And then, I, you know, you see online and you see it in papers, people praying fervently. So maybe we can look at what traditionally is prayed and then a very prayer that I've prayed. Uh, and so let's, let's try to look at that. So a mass shooting happens, and then it's, it's easy for people to say, I pray for the victims, families, and first responders, right? And then they maybe pray for, you know, uh, their, their family. Uh, they pray for what they're going to do at school the next day. So I, I know it seems trite, but just to focus on that word pray, like I pray for the victims and families and then move on to something else. There's no, nothing is magical about the word pray. It really doesn't say much, right? It doesn't really mean anything. It's no magical power. I used to pray like that. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for my dad and I pray for my brother. I pray for my test uh, tomorrow mm -hmm. that I'm going to have. But although God is gracious enough to look at the heart and consider such prayers, there are much more effective ways to pray. And then you might hear after a mass shooting, God, be with the families of the shooting victims. Pour out your grace on the surviving family members and comfort and heal their wounded hearts. Those who use the conspiring prayer model already know that God is with those families. Like before you're even praying, God is on the scene. God is already loving and comforting to the extent that God can. What kind of God are we actually portraying by the prayers that we're praying by suggesting that God isn't? Would a loving God who can love can, can affect the outcome event but choose not to and just sit idly by and do nothing? Is that a loving God? 
So for me, those who pray the conspiring prayer model, we trust that God in his loving character comforts and heals wounded hearts to the degree that he is able while respecting their free will. God grieves along with the devastated families. God's grace has been poured out in their lives as instantly available to them in greater measure if they choose to open the doors of their heart to them. It's not just their will, not just the doors of their heart, but that's one aspect of many variables that can come into play. We can share our desires for hurting loved ones with God to experience more of his presence, grace, and comfort, knowing full well God wants them to experience more of those things too. Or we could pray without trusting in the goodness of God. Then there's some who might pray, turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring further disaster on your people. Right? These are people who have an image of God that suggests that God did that. It was the will of God. God planned it before eternity. Uh, they could be on the Calvinistic uh, spectrum or just believe that God is in control of every event that occurs. To, to name that then, that's like, uh, that would be like a, and he does it, so I, it's fair, I feel like. That'd be like a Pat Robertson saying, Hurricane, um, I can't remember the name, not Michael, the one prior, please don't hit me here. Please go further south or please go further north. Or if it does hit us oh, here, it's, yeah. it's because we did it wrong. Or, you know, oh Sandy, you know, or, or Hurricane, did you not hear that? Yeah, he def, he def, he definitely did. Yeah, or, you know, you'll hear people saying, you know the twin towers fell because of you know we we are we deserved it we we need to pray that we turn our wicked hearts back to god so that the next calamity doesn't happen who wants to be in relationship with that kind of god like this is serious like it, it's serious to like theology matters it's like it, it's not just well let's just love everyone all you know all people we basically believe the same thing no we don't there's some theology that so damaging and, and such an obstacle to people, people being in intimate relationship with God. And that kind of theology of an, an, uh, a brutal uh, authoritarian ogre who, who causes this kind of and allows this kind of evil upon people's lives, this kind of violence, it's, I'm sorry, it's, it's sick. Like, I can... The people aren't sick, but that theology is, is, can be so damaging. And as a licensed therapist and researcher, we're doing a lot of research now on how theodicy, how religious beliefs actually, is there any correlation between that and how we treat each other, how we uh, engage in maybe violence ourselves. So there's good stuff up and coming that uh, researchers who don't even believe in God are, are doing because they know this stuff matters, yeah. all right? There's something very important here. So, you know, I don't, I don't believe, so that kind of prayer, God, turn your fierce anger, relent, do not bring further disaster on your people. I don't believe that's the best kind of prayer because that's not who God is. God, God already hates violence. I don't need to convince God to not do a violence. I mean, so violence is sin, and sin ruptures, fractures, wounds, distorts, and numbs our relationship with God, with ourselves, with others. God is not going to perpetuate that. A loving God is not going to perpetuate violence and sin. Um, so, yeah, doomsday preachers and angry prophetic teachers, yep, not, not, not a huge fan of that kind of theology. Yeah. So, Mark, let's get into the nuts and bolts. How have I prayed? Uh, let, me, let me share with you. Right here's a prayer that if I can uh, read this, this is something that I wrote and I've prayed 
and it speaks very powerful to me. So it says, keeping in mind God's uncontrolling love and character is keeping in mind humans having free will. And I say, God, we praise you for being good. Thank you for being intimately close to the families of the victims of this horrific shooting. I'm sorry, it's getting me emotional. Just We know you are grieved and mourn with us. We are aware you are angry that this happened again. Heavenly, earthly, motherly father, we need this violence to stop now. It tears our communities and this world apart. It breaks our hearts, and we know it breaks yours. We thank you that you comfort and mend the family's broken hearts to the extent that you are able. We hope that the families accept your love and experience your tenderness towards them in this painful time. Faithful God, what can we do together to stop this madness? Or at the very least, to help these families experience your tangible love. We don't want to be passive bystanders. We, we want to be spirit-led, active adventurers, paving the way for justice, peace, and healing. God, we attune our hearts, ears to your voice in this very moment. What is it that you would have us do? as your hands and feet, since your, your empire of love can reign in this hour. Amen. So for me, that's, that's a conspiring prayer. That's a prayer that keeps in mind a loving, uncontrolling God, a God who yearns for justice more than we do. Man, that, that's, so we could still pray, right? I'm not saying that, that prayer is done with and over. We can pray powerful prayers that keep in mind an uncontrolling love of God. And, I, you know, people have been joining me all over the world with these kinds of prayers, and I firmly believe that it's increasing God's shalom in the world. And it's doing something very different than the traditional prayers. God, you do. Yeah. I'm telling you, that the, the God, you do kinds of prayers are definitely not as effective as God, how can we do kinds of prayers. Yeah, no, I like that. Where, so that leads me to, I'd like to end with this. Where are people joining you at? How, um, I want to buy one of the study guides. I don't have the study guide. I'm going to, I'm going to fix that today. So besides the study guides, how, where do people join you in that? Is there, is there a collective place that these prayers are being uh, written and shared for, uh, you know, because it it is, it is going to have to be a relearned, type of prayer because old habits die hard and old mentalities die harder so where yeah, where do yeah. people come for that to either either under yeah. guidance from people like yourselves or in a community does is, does that exist are you making that happen anywhere yeah yeah uh, first off let me just share that for yourself and any of your listeners um if they purchase the book I'm going to do something crazy and I'm just going to give them the workbook for free that's selling on Amazon. So let, let's start there that if any of your, your listeners buy the book, either print or, or ebook, I'll send them, uh, just contact me and I'll just send you the workbook. I'll send you the workbook too. Um, so as far as networks, I mean, I just, for me, I get emails. It's mostly from people. I've, I've received them all over the world of people who are, praying this way, who have been touched by the book, who have been disturbed by the book, um, and are shifting and shaping their praise in a unique way that keeps God's uncontrolling love in mind. Yeah. Some have written their own prayers that they've sent to me. 
Um, as far as a community, I mean, there's a Divine Echoes Facebook group. To be honest, it's not very active, but occasionally some people post some interesting stuff there. And yeah, it's mostly just people contacting me and just uh, sending me messages. That's that's where I experience uh, most of the interactions. So, but I will say that, you know, I've gotten a lot of emails of, of groups, church groups, small groups of using the workbook, reading the book and having some powerful experiences in small groups. So start a small group, right? I mean, I don't, here's my thing. I'm a human being. I'm not God. Uh, this theology that a petitioning prayer I'm offering is my perspective of some, you know, some white male who is living in 2000, uh, you know, 18 in specific geographical location. You know, I have a myopic view of all things divine. So my hope is that other people wrestle through the material and come up, like I said, do their own investigation deconstruction and reconstruction of petitionary prayer. Let this be your adventure. You know, I, I hope people use the conspiring prayer model of prayer. I think it is more effective. I think it's a little bit more of a mature a view of God, a healthier view of God. But wrestle through this yourself. You'd be amazed at how many people have never questioned the mechanics of prayer, what their prayer actually says about their view of God, uh, whether prayer is effective or not effective. I get into the the science of petitionary prayer. What does the science say? Is there any science that petitionary prayer is effective or not? Right? There's a $2.4 million study that was done. That's a lot of money on petitionary prayer, whether it worked or not. Your readers can check that out. It's in the book, or they can search it online. A $2.4 million study done by Harvard researchers supported by the Templeton Foundation. Yeah. Check out the outcome of that. Yeah. Right? Be curious, wrestle, question, get other people who you feel can journey with you without judging you and criticizing you and condemning you, because there's plenty of people that will do that. Find some fellow adventurers. Find what I call your holy huddle. Those people that you can huddle with and you could strategize with, you could talk about your, your inner angst and your pain, your shame and your doubt and your disgust, and you'll receive mutual love and care and understanding and even beautiful challenge when needed. So that, that's kind of my plea to, to some of your listeners. Yeah, well, thank you, first off, for that invitation of the workbook. That's, that generosity is it's not common in the world that we live in. So thank you so much for that. And I do hope that they'll take you up on that. Yeah. Uh, where else would you direct people um, to get in touch with you, to find you, interact with you? I uh, have a site called conspiringprayer.com. And there's some material that's not in the book that I've written some blogs uh, after the fact that, that get into a prayer in general. And, you know, there's a short video, there's a you know, some uh, workbook questions, get an idea of what the workbook is like. So conspiringprayer.com is probably going to be the, the best site to go to, to, you know, for curious uh, listeners. Uh, I think that would be uh, pretty cool to check out. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. I appreciate your heart 
and I know your your listeners and are continually loved, blessed, and challenged by you. So, good Thank stuff. You. Thank you for that. Come and breathe this soul and rest your weary laden soul. I know the time will come again when we can all just live as friends. And then the tears we've come. Next year, I look forward to, to diving more specifically into different practices of prayer intentional practices that are different and way outside of my comfort zone and I have to hope many of yours but I found over this last year that when I get out of my comfort zone that is where I often meet God not where it's easy but where I have to deal and wrestle with hopes and dreams that maybe have not come to fruition or maybe hopes and dreams that did and I I've wasted those opportunities or I've abused the privileges and power that comes with it. Or maybe I've done it right and I want to see what more I can do. But I really look forward to digging more into prayer and the theology of it, different ways to participate in it. And I think conspiring prayer is a great way to start. And so as you enter in to Christmas, as you lead liturgies, as you participate in liturgies, keep in mind this different method of prayer. I know I certainly will. I do want to see how it changes my posture. I'm excited at the possibility of praying in a different way. I'm excited at the different aspects of myself that I'll see and the different aspects of God that I will see. Please remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. Tell a friend. The music woven throughout the episode today was provided by artist Chris Neal up-and-coming artist that just randomly popped up on my Spotify playlist and I was blown away by his music and you'll find today's tracks on the Spotify playlist called Can I Say This at Church you'll find Chris Neal at chrisneal.com spelled K-R-I-S-N-E-E-L dot com my heart 